Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, and these are stories, true as we can tell them. In the Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Deb Venslet. And I'm Matt Goldberg. We're back with more True Life Stories. Uh, we have two stories for you here today from two very different shows. And we're pairing them together. Under the theme of, well, the themes, I guess, of rules and identity. How do rules form your identity? Does your identity make a rule? Exactly what I was going to say. The principles you choose to live by, do those define who you are? Or does your definition of who you are shape the rules that you choose to follow? Yeah. Did I land that? You landed landed that in terms (laughs) of the fact that it's a little ambiguous sometimes what our identity is, particularly since it shifts. Mm. And I think in uh, both of these stories, um, there's epiphanies actually about the perceived identity and the rules that actually wreaked havoc on those identities. Let's not say any more about the stories until we've had a chance to hear them. So coming up first, we have a story from February of 2019. The theme was First Comes Love. It was told at the Centre Fee. And our first storyteller is Christina Miniaka. So I'm a few weeks into a new school year, and I'm standing outside of a classroom at 7.30 in the morning. I'm 15, holding a stack of textbooks that feels like it weighs about 40 pounds, and praying that somehow my teacher will arrive before my arms fall off. For what feels like the first time, though, I'm not the only person there ludicrously early. Two girls, whom I've never noticed before, stand in front of the classroom next to mine, conversing in German. One of them immediately grabs my attention, as she is holding a stack of books large enough to rival my own. And she stands at about seven inches shorter than me, the exact height I'd always wished I'd stayed. (laughs) My eyes travel next to the hands holding her books, or more specifically, at the nails on her left hand. See, I've always prided myself on my ability to give myself really intricate manicures instead of seeing a professional like everyone else seemed to, And here she was with her own intricate nail art. I want to shrink down into myself a little, and I do not approach her. In fact, I don't say a word to her for quite some time, not even when we join the same 12-person social circle. This girl's name is Anne, and she is an exchange student from Stuttgart, Germany. She's 16, and all of my peers and teachers are fascinated by her. Frankly, why wouldn't they be? She's smart, creatively talented, and beautiful. She even attracts the attention of the boy I've been trying to work up the courage to court since the beginning of the year, the lanky intellectual artist who draws comics for the school newspaper. (laughs) But with Anne in the picture, I know I don't stand a chance. Every day I watch as they sit side by side at lunchtime, exchanging poetry and artwork, and as their relationship grows, I know I can never speak to her civilly, because nothing seems worse at the time than the thought of another girl getting the affection of my unreciprocated crush. Now, I've watched enough high school coming-of-age movies to know that the perfect opportunity for her to make her move on this boy would be at a school dance. And I can't just stand and watch everything unfold. 
So when that night comes along and my friends force me to attend, I resolve to sit on a bench the whole night alone and brood. <laughs> Except there's a flaw in my plan. Because I sit down and I look to my left and there's Anne, alone. Not inside, slow dancing with our man friend because that's what she assumed I'd be doing. Every day she had watched as we'd spend hours talking about nerdy things like comic books and after school every day he'd walk me home so she thought she didn't stand a chance with him. It's in this moment that we realize how absolutely pathetic we've both been <laughs> avoiding each other over some boy and we vow to get to know each other better. We spend the rest of that night talking along with every day and night thereafter. We become inseparable. We share stories and secrets, our deepest thoughts and emotions. Whenever I can't sleep, it's Anne that I call for comfort because no one can comfort me like she can. The things I was once jealous of have become the things I admire most about her. And I tell everyone I know about my best friend who's more like a twin sister. But like with all exchange students, there comes a time for her to go back home and I can feel that day approaching like an ever tightening knot in the pit of my stomach. I spend every day of her last week in Canada with her. And at the end of it, my friends and I do the only thing we really can do. We throw her a party. It's Saint Jean Baptiste Day, and with that day comes fireworks. What better way is there to send off a friend than with fireworks? One of us has a house on the edge of the river that would give a perfect view of the spectacle, so that is where we all head. But things never go according to plan, do they? No, it rains all day, and rumors are circulating that the fireworks have been canceled, and we're devastated. We just sit in the living room drinking watered-down fruit punch, frustrated because there doesn't seem to be a storm cloud in sight. It's such a beautiful summer night, and it would be a shame to let it go to waste. So we decide all together to walk to a nearby park and we're laughing and singing into the open air, high off of the freedom that summer vacation brings, and we're just grateful to be together on such an emotional night. And then a raindrop hits my face, and then another. And a collective moan of fear is emitted as we are pelted by the most cold and painful torrential downpour of rain we could imagine. We don't even stop to communicate. We just break into a sprint until we reach that park and we seek cover under a tall spiral slide. When we stop to catch our breath, we break out into hysterical laughter, adrenaline coursing through our veins. And when my eyes meet Anne's, we start laughing even harder with the realization that our final moments together are being spent cold and wet, risking the strike of lightning. She runs to me and she grabs my hand and as we stand together moments later in some strange serendipitous twist of fate, fireworks begin lighting the night sky and it's magical. This is better than the send-off we had envisioned for this wonderful person and we all huddle in close together marveling at the sight of fireworks in the rain. Colorful embers make the raindrops sparkle as they fall from the sky, and Anne wraps her arms around me and lays her damp head against my chest. And as I hold her close to me, all I can think about is how desperately I wish I could kiss her. Wait, what? <laughs> Ooh. 
once the thought hits me, I don't know how to process it. Everything around me stops existing, and my head is filled with more thoughts than I can process. I've only ever been attracted to men in the past, let alone my closest female friend, so the thought that I might be anything but straight is too much to handle alongside the emotions already overwhelming me on this night. So I repress the thought, knowing that I can't do or say anything about it, at least not yet. But in this moment, something has become abundantly clear to me. I can tell myself and everyone I know all I want that Anne is like a sister to me, but the fact is, I don't just love her like family, I am in love with her. And that realization fills me with a warmth that makes me forget how cold and wet the rain is. And my heart flutters as I hold her to me for the rest of that night and try to commit to memory what her body feels like in my arms. And at the end of the night, when we part ways, and she looks back at me one last time before closing the door behind her, we say I love you as we have countless times before. Only this time, my words carry a weight that I cannot begin to express to her. Thank you. Next storyteller is Taylor Tower. This was part of the Audience Favorites show at the Mainline Theater in April 2019. So I'm banned for life from the greatest place on earth, Powell's City of Books in Portland, Oregon. If you're unfamiliar with Powell's Books, it is one city block, 1.6 acres of books of all kinds, new, used, rare. Powell's Books is a place where you can truly read until you just can't read anymore. Um, it is a place where you walk in and there's a warehouse feeling, there's like exposed pipes and floor to ceiling windows and just like rows and rows of books. And what's really screwed up about how I'm banned for life from Powell's books is that I'm a crusader for the rules. Like I always have been. In preschool, I convinced the other kids that we should clean up our toys before we are being told by the teacher. In elementary school, I was on the safety patrol and I was a conflict manager at recess. In high school, my nickname was Mom. <laughs> and so on this day, I just worked a full shift at a daycare, taking care of other people's kids. I'm covered in spit up, and let's be real, pee and poop. And I just want something to read on the bus ride home. So as I cross with the light, and enter the doors, I'm hit with that familiar, yet always intoxic intoxicating smell of varnish and paper and wood. But as I look around, it's like madness. The line at the checkout is going down the stairs, it's winding through all the different aisles, I can't do this. So although I'm disappointed, I turn to leave. And that's when I see it. A rack of newspapers, beyond the checkout, next to the door. Oh, Powell's, thank you. Something for me to read that's free? So I take a New York Times, and that's when a little voice in my head makes me pause. Are you sure this is free? Well, I've never bought a newspaper, because why would you? <laughs> but 
It's right by the door. Why would you go past where you're supposed to pay? Anyway, the whole, I took it. <laughs> but just to test, you know, I stand right outside the door for a few seconds, and there's no alarm, there's no chaos, and so I keep walking. And then I hear, miss, miss. And I turn around, and there's a, a portly gentleman in his like late 50s wearing a black t-shirt, black jeans, black orthopedic shoes, and like a huge beard. And he's gesturing to me like, Madame, you've dropped something. And I haven't dropped anything, so I'm like, thank you so much. I'm good. I'm just going to keep going. So I keep walking. And then I feel a tap on my shoulder. And it's this bearded guy. And now that he's close to me, he really is like 100% beard. And <laughs> it opens up, and he's like, I saw what you did. We have you on camera. Come with me. And the last five minutes, it's a play-by-play -play in my head, okay? And then the, the rack, and then is it free? Oh, it's not free. <laughs> so I take it out of my bag, and I, I hold it out to him, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I thought it was... But he's not taking it. Instead, he takes my arm real hard, squeezing me with all, all his finger strength, and he starts leading me back to Powell's. And the whole time, the beard opens up and spit is flying. And he's like, oh, I'm going to have the cops here. Yeah, I'm sorry. And he's leading me back. And I can feel the eyes of everyone boring into me, through my skin, into my soul. And as we go through the doors, he leads me to what I thought all these years was a wall. But there's a doorknob, and it opens onto this tiny, windowless interrogation room with a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling. And he sits down at a metal desk. And the room is so small that I can't sit opposite him. I am sitting next to him. And I am crying my eyes out, because this doesn't happen to people like me, a conflict manager, a, sa a, a, a proud safety patrol alum. And so he's screaming about the cops. They could be here in two minutes. And I'm trying to explain. It was a mistake. Do you want me to pay the $1 that the newspaper costs or clean your toilets or whatever? I'll do it. And that's when a lanky guy comes in without saying a word and leans against the wall. And his name tag says, Chris, manager. And I put my head in my hands, and I continue to weep. And I feel yet another tap on my shoulder. And when I look up, I'm blinded by a flash, because Chris is in front of me on one knee taking a picture of me with a digital camera. My swollen, snot-soaked face. And he doesn't explain. He, do he doesn't say a word. But instead, Beardo looks at him and says, I'm thinking exclusion. And I pipe up, and I'm like, I'm sorry, what does that entail? And he whips towards me and says, it means you're banned for life from all Powell's locations, and if you even set foot in a Powell's parking lot, you'll be arrested for criminal trespass. <laughs> and with that, Chris, the manager, takes my hand and leads me outside and gives me his business card and says, you can appeal. And I do. I write a strongly worded letter saying exactly what happened and begging desperately for forgiveness. I hear nothing for years. <laughs> you need to understand that Portland's not that big of a town and Powell's really is the place. 
where happiness is. <laughs> also, everybody works there. So in the intervening years, I'm walking down the street, and many people who don't know me well come up to me and say, hey, Taylor, I saw a picture of you crying on my screensaver at Powell's. <laughs> so that's what the picture's for. It's to let the employees know who's banned for life. Many years go by, and I meet a boy from Chicago who looks very much like a cartoon. <laughs> so obviously, I'm attracted. And Daniel Klaus is doing a reading at Powell's, and it's free. And it's been so many years. I mean, maybe no news is good news, you know what I mean? So I meet the boy outside of Powell's, and I'm just too excited. I bound like a gazelle up the stairs because I just want to get good seats for Daniel Klaus. And then like a swarm of locusts, like secret service men, straight up in black sunglasses and headsets and what very much appear to be bulletproof vests, surround me and escort me out. And because I ran ahead of my date, we meet on the stairs. And uh, needless to say, that didn't go where I wanted it to go. So one day, I'm standing across the street from the smaller Powell's location, and I'm watching people go in and come out with their arms full of books. And I'm like, do you know how lucky you are? And then I'm like, you know what? This isn't fair. Powell's, you don't know me. You don't know the kind of person I am. And so without a second thought, I put on my sunglasses and my beret, because that's something I own, and I jaywalk across the street and through those forbidden doors, and I make a beeline for the book that I want, which is English Grammar for Students of French. <laughs> and I wait in the checkout line, and thank God I don't recognize the cashier. And my hands are sweating, and my heart is pounding, and I give him the book, and he rings it up, and he looks at me, and he asks, did you find everything you were looking for? <laughs> I take a deep breath. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Puts it in a bag, and I walk out the door. Thank you. There's so much to say about these stories and these storytellers. Yeah, what's the first thing you want to say? You were talking before about your class and yeah. when you're teaching a class. Well, so Christina is actually a former student of mine, and she told this story for the first time in my class. It was her final project Amazing. for my class at Vanier College. And I remember the room after she was finished telling it. Um, this is the thing about college. I don't know if everyone has been to college who's listened to this podcast, but if you remember that experience of walking into a room and not knowing anyone and spending a whole semester getting to know three people. Um, but what happened when Christina told this story is that everyone in the room um, saw her in a way that they hadn't before, understood her in a way they hadn't before. And it was a really beautiful moment. Uh, she's the only student I remember who had a standing ovation after she finished her story. No kidding. And that's when I booked her for the show. <laughs> but this was her first story. And I'm so proud of her. And I'm so impressed by the work that she's put into it. And um, uh, having the opportunity also to put her story with Taylor's story. If, if you're not uh, familiar, Taylor Tower is an incredible storyteller. She's been with our show since the beginning. She's told stories at The Moth, on Risk, I think, as well. Certainly Wiretap. 
Um, her stories are everywhere and should be everywhere <laughs> because we love her dearly. Yeah, super experienced storyteller. And the first time I, I met her, she was teaching a class at the Quebec Writers' Federation, and I took her storytelling class. Not only is she a great storyteller, but she's a wonderful storytelling teacher. Absolutely. I, I should say as well, she was the uh, one of the founders of our Confab Story Lab workshop mm-hmm. as well. And we are grateful for her that for that, for getting us started in workshopping. Um, but back to her story. Yeah, I want to talk about her story. I want to talk about Christina's story. Um, and I want to talk about my class because there's a question I ask yeah. my class whenever they're preparing a story, which is what does your story say about you? And what are you telling your audience about yourself when you're presenting a story? I think that's such an important question. There's those stories that you tell or that you're getting, that you tell at a party or you might tell some friends um, about something great that you do or some great accomplishment. But if you put that story on stage without any reflection, it feels boastful. It feels wrong. If the story is, look how great I am, that's gross. And I think it's telling that despite the fact that our two storytellers today are both heroic, uh, <laughs> Taylor in a really interesting way heroic um, they don't come off as being perfect they don't come off flawless they are very aware of their flaws and their limitations and they apologize in, in, in a way for, for what they get wrong mm-hmm. I think that level of, of awareness is so important in good storytelling yeah I guess that's 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 really the the, the clincher really is mm. is if you can take it out of the anecdote and mm. into something that has a universal or uh a reflection or something that can be shared more broadly because the thing for me about Taylor is the um, the the identity that she had that she was very kind of self-righteous about in terms of I am a rule follower mm. and the indignation <laughs> at being at being sort of accused of being a rule breaker like that was something she really had to just grapple with it was so outside of how she saw herself and i i have nothing but time for stories like christina's which explore the musical chairs that we play in high school what is my identity today just spin the wheel and see who we really are but of course it isn't really like that and as we start to live we unpack and we uncover that identity underneath and i think it's so beautiful that you wanted to share that with us yeah anyway it's a nice pairing for the show Well done, us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I did that thing. We're not supposed to be boastful in our stories, and we just were. Well, we can cut it out. I kind of don't want (laughs) to. This is it. We're we're, we're a few episodes in. We're getting a little loose with this, so that feels like a good time to say goodbye for today. And thank you for listening to this Confabulation podcast from Montreal. Thanks so much for listening to Confabulation. We're a nonprofit dedicated to the art of true life storytelling. We run monthly autobiographical storytelling shows in Montreal, Toronto, and Victoria. You can learn more about the show and sign up for our mailing list at confabulation.ca or check us out on social media where we're at Confab Stories. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced by our team Cassandra Tugneri, Carolyn Michaels, Pat McTaggart, Deb Benslet, Stephen Trepanier, and me, Matt Goldberg. Special thanks to the Conseil des Arts de Montréal for their support of Confabulation. We couldn't do it without you.